Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we're empowering mental and emotional health for Asian Americans and voices of color by breaking through taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Make your story beautiful today. Hey there, I'm just popping in really quick to remind you that if you leave a review for this podcast between now and January 31st, 2024, then you will be entered to win a free 45-minute coaching session with me, and we can talk about your business, we can talk about your mindset, we can talk about content marketing, however you want it to flow. We can even talk about intuition and, you know, navigating where you are in life and where you'd like to go throughout this year. So again, for anybody who leaves a review for the Fuck Saving Face podcast between now and January 31st, then you will be entered to win a complimentary coaching session with me. I am going to be totally honest with you. As an Asian American who was taught from a very young age that I should make the most of everything that I do to get the most value out of every moment. I have a great podcast editor and the way that we've structured our relationship. It doesn't really matter how long each of the episodes are. We've just like agreed upon, you know, that I do an episode every other week. So there's a part of me that's like, well, I better make every episode super worth it and make sure that I maximize so it's not just like a 15 minute episode, but it's like a 30 minute episode. So I get the most value. And that my friends is how deep your internal programming can go from a very young age of what you learn. And I'm so excited because in a couple of weeks, it's right now at the end of December. So towards the end of January, I'm going to be going to facilitate a conversation with a few podcast guests. So as a writer, I was super excited that someone from a major publishing house reached out to me via Instagram to ask if I would review a book. So they mailed me the book and then asked, you know, like basically they just wanted me to review the book, but I was like, hey, I have a podcast, I can interview the guests. So I had an opportunity to interview the guests, which co-founded this organization that a very early podcast guest is a part of. And this very early podcast guest, Sharon Kwan, published a couple of articles that went viral on the Huffington Post, all about, you know, what Asian Americans wish they could say, what they want you to know. And these two therapists published this book called Where I Belong. And in the future episode, when I feature their interview, I will offer a copy of their book to you for anybody who goes and leaves a review between now and the time that their episode debuts towards the end of January because they're coming to La Jolla in San Diego. And I'm going to go and they asked me to facilitate the conversation because they said out of all the different podcast interviews that they have been on that I am one of the top interviewers, which I found very flattering. And, you know, I'm super grateful for that feedback. And they want me to be there at the oldest family owned and operated bookstore in all of the country to facilitate their conversation. So that night, I actually have my daughter. And originally, I thought, oh, okay, well, I have my daughter, you know, it's like an event that starts at around seven o'clock. So, you know, I want her to get into bed at a certain time. And the universe has arranged it so that a friend of mine is going to potentially come into town 
she will also potentially bring a friend of hers who works in childcare. And so I thought about it for a second. I'm like, wait a minute, I could bring my daughter to this event. You know, she wouldn't get home any later than some of the nights that she stays up a little bit later. And she could see her mom facilitating this event, which I hadn't even thought of. I did not even think that it would be something that she'd be interested in or that something that I could take her to. But it's absolutely something she'd be interested in because she, unlike me, has so much more pride about being part Asian than I ever did being full Asian because I have encouraged her to understand that from a very early age that, you know, she is made up of these different ethnicities, these different cultures, and that's a gift as opposed to something to be ashamed of. And so she's spoken up for herself at a very early age in different circumstances, which I'm beyond proud of. And even just the other day, I, you know, one of her close friends who's a little bit younger, who's also half Asian, half white, they were all playing. It was the holidays. You know, the kids are getting like overloaded potentially with sugar and stimulation and all these other things. And I told my daughter before we got there, if it gets to be too much, then just come talk to me and just say, mom, I'm ready to go home. Because I know that that's how I am. I get overloaded and overstimulated with huge crowds. I was just watching The Crown. And there was a scene where, you know, it's her coronation, it's her like 50th jubilee. And I'm watching this probably computer created crowd. But it was just completely overwhelming. Like I would never want to be in that situation. And so that's just not my jam. And while my daughter has traits that are completely her own, she's much more extroverted than I am. She does have certain traits that are similar to mine, where she is a little bit introverted and ready to just call it when it's done. So, you know, the kids were playing and she just comes downstairs and she looks at me. She's like, mom, can we go home? I'm like, sure, totally. No questions started to get her jacket and stuff. And then she ended up having a conversation with her friend, who is basically like her younger sister. And, you know, this younger child was saying like, oh, you know, like, just basically complaining about my daughter. And so my daughter asked her, like, what was it? Like, what happened? What, what do you think happened that caused that feeling? And the younger child just walked away. So my daughter just comes to me and we get in the car, we drive home and I look at her and I, in the, <laughs> while we're in the car getting ready to go home, we're driving, it's only a few minutes away. And I just said, I'm, I'm really proud of you, babe. I watched you. I watched your interaction with this other child. And, you know, you asked, what did I do? How were, why do you feel like that? And while the younger child couldn't answer or didn't answer, I'm proud of you that you asked so that you could take responsibility so that you could understand what the situation was. And she was like, really, mom? I'm like, yeah, I'm super proud of you for doing that. That's not the easy thing to do. In fact, it's a lot. It's like, not what most adults do. And I was just so grateful to see that and to be there for her and to understand that her feelings were hurt which she definitely expressed to me, but just to see her growing up. And it has occurred to me that in this evolution of her growing up, 
you know, she's almost nine years old, and we have been divorced since she was four or separated since she was four, maybe even a little bit earlier. And there's, she's my only one. There's only so much time that I'm going to get with her in this childhood. And because I don't have another child, like this is the one go that I have at raising this child. So I've been thinking about it recently, like, okay, well, do I want it to be overshadowed by the incidences that I have to manage with her father? Or do I want to create this experience? Because this is the only experience that I'm going to get of her being at this age, of me being her mother, of all of these things. And I'd rather focus on those things. I'd rather focus on that experience than any of the other challenges that I have to deal with. And as we enter into the end of the year, by the time this episode airs, I would say that some of the things that I'm really learning are that when people are unkind to you, they're potentially mean or cruel, or they say things and you don't understand where it's coming from, that it's more demonstrative of how much they are hurting inside than about anything about you. And taking the long view, there's like this phrase in Mandarin that my mom used to say to me of Shankaila. So like, think it open, you know, just take the long view and see how it'll all evolve and unfold. And so I'm learning that. I've also been waking up at like one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, and having these big thoughts when I'm waking up. I don't know if it's like my dream state that I'm coming to or whatnot. But just starting to realize that, oh my gosh, I'm in a relationship with someone where for the first time in my life, I feel like it is not my job to take care of someone else's emotions, that this person can have feelings about me or my actions or him and his actions or our interactions together, whatever it is, but that it's not my job to have to fix it and make it right. And that has been so much of all of my life is managing other people's emotions. I did it when I was young with my parents. I did it in any work situation that I was in, in any friendship situation that I was in. And recently, it finally occurred to me like, oh my gosh, I am 45 years old now. And this is the first time in my life where I'm realizing someone else has the capacity to handle their own feelings and that we can talk about it. We can work through it. And it doesn't have to be my responsibility to make it better. And that was such a huge awareness, which is potentially surprising for someone in their mid 40s. But I think that if you are a child of immigrants who's had to help navigate your parents' path to help them adjust to a country where English is not their first language, to help your younger siblings, that this is not an unusual situation or circumstance to be in, and that it takes awareness and wherewithal to even get to that point to say, oh my gosh, that's not my job. I don't have to do that because someone else has the capacity and the emotional bandwidth to handle it. And that is not to say that my parents lacked the desire to have that emotional capacity, but they didn't have the resources to help themselves get there. So a lot of what I feel like I'm evolving into is understanding my parents' journey with so much more compassion and grace 
to understand that my acceptance of them makes me more whole and to not excuse the things that happened because a lot of it was traumatic. In fact, my therapist would say like, I downplay a lot of things that happened in my life or, you know, I just make light of them. My best friend would just would say the same thing. She's like, yeah, you've mentioned things to me before where I look at you and I'm like, wait, what? Just because the gravity of what I went through would be so much deeper than the way that I present the situation. So the other person on the receiving end is like, okay, well, I guess it's not that big of a deal, even though their intellectual mind is saying like, that sounds like a big deal. So I've learned from my therapist that that is a trait of survivors of trauma, which I always don't love when she says, she's like, well, I mean, like, let's call a spade a spade. That's what it is is that I will downplay things. And so it's taken me a while to also realize that some of the things that I've gone through over the last four years, you know, with the divorce and with all those things have been fairly traumatic. And I've just continued to muscle on. And I love my life now. I'm so grateful for the way that it is now. But it's it's the holding all of the emotions, the contrasting emotions, you know, all at once that kind of... I think is basically what I say every time when I say that life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful and you can make your story beautiful today. So the reframing and the rewriting, all of that is so important. And today I'm going to read an article or a chapter of my book. And I am so, so grateful that someone found me on LinkedIn and has been such an advocate of my story and the journey and sees the purpose that I have quietly wanted to bring out into the world and he's seen it and spoken it. And it's just remarkable to have someone like that in my corner, but it's taken a little bit to just even believe like, why is this person wanting to help me? What is this person getting out of it? And genuinely the last call that we had, cause we have a weekly accountability call on Wednesdays. He basically said like, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for this relationship. And honestly, to me, like basically what I've been doing is just sharing my story and he feels so grateful to be involved with it. So I've talked about it with my therapist and I'm, she's like, you know, when we first worked together, you would never have let this in. You would never have let in this support. And that is something that I'm so grateful for, for this past year is the unbelievable amount of support And I know that I've also given out support, but the ability to receive it is unbelievable. And it's one line that I shared in my newsletter recently of the fact that it can be so and even more scary to receive the kind of love that you've always wanted and you've always dreamed of, more so than pushing it away. So I saw a post, I reposted it, and a lot of people commented on it and said, yep, that's totally me. That's like, I can't believe how much this hit home and how we self-sabotage a lot of the time because that gives us this illusion of control that if we know how it's going to turn out, then, you know, it like makes us feel better that we can control that. But it's all an illusion, And that feeling good and feeling loved and feeling appreciated, I can tell you from firsthand experience, is so much more remarkable than the self-sabotage, but it takes a monumental amount of practice to get there. So for today's episode, I'm going to read to you a chapter 
that was about how I was born premature and I was put in an incubator when I was born. And the title of the chapter, which is still a working draft, is called It Began in the Darkness. It was dark in there, the not-so-easy-bake oven where I spent the beginnings of my life. Five pounds, eight ounces, born one month early, training without touch in the incubator, starting at 6.15 a.m. Sunset Boulevard. I'm much older than my siblings, so I remember when they were born. I remember their gray eyes, how my grandmother, my mother, said they could not yet see clearly. They only knew shapes, smell, touch. I watched as my youngest brother's eyes became solid, began to see the environment he was born into, the screaming so loudly that it was as though we all went deaf. The tyrannical nature of my father beating into us when his rage went beyond what his yelling could accomplish. The hysterical nature of my mother when she went into her bipolar fits and spurts of completely unsanctioned and unacceptable behavior to demanding that we love her, that we pay her respect, that we don't talk back. But what was there really to say anyway? My youngest brothers, his eyes speak more than his words will ever reveal. In the old house on Tolan Way, in the ghetto of Eagle Rock before it became hipster, I remember the way the sun would shine through the sliding glass door that separated the room where my sister and I slept on our bunk bed from the same room where my mother and father shared their bed. I liked it, perhaps because mesmerized by it. Or maybe this is what happens when we pursue this path of greater consciousness and evolving. Maybe we rewrite the memories. Maybe we shine the spotlight elsewhere saying, look over there, look over here. The main characters, the action is happening over here. Even though a part of you, of me, still wants to look in the other corner because we know that even if it is quiet or subtle, it is substantial what's happening in the shadows of light. Before I started second grade, we moved. We moved into a house on the corner of a block in West Los Angeles, and I remember my father saying, I'll put in a skylight. How about that? He also said, I'll put in a second story, but that never happened. Not for all my wishing, wanting, asking, and asking again that happened throughout elementary school into junior high school. Instead, there was one fish pond in the backyard, then a second because it became a business investment when they bought the aquarium store. And then there was that time that I fell into the original one playing Marco Polo with my siblings, blindfolded so I couldn't see anything. I gasped as I felt myself trip into the murky water. I ripped off the mask where I was met with fish funk and green algae. Why is it always you? My mother joked, seeing me walk into the back door sopping wet. We always worry that it's going to be one of your younger siblings getting into trouble, but it's always you. You're the one who falls through the open gap in the floor. You're the one who falls off the shower curtain rod and breaks a panel off the glass pane because you're playing monkey. It's always you, and you're the oldest. Why don't you fix these things then, I want to say to them. Why don't you make it so there's no floor to fall into, so that there's nothing that breaks when I put any pressure onto it? But I say nothing. I just absorb what they have to say. Now, there is a skylight hanging over the dining room of my parents' house. My mother has even put crystals intertwining beneath it on fish wire, the spare that she can find of my father's, because he can't go fishing as frequently as he would like. This born-again Christian woman who looked at my deities that I was packing up in San Diego before moving to Hawaii and said, Oh no, I'm not taking those home with me. You can give those to your friends. Just 15 minutes earlier, 
I was marveling that she had said, even though you know I'm religious now, I believe in love more than anything else. It's all about love. My eyes grew wider, shocked at what she was saying. My yogic philosophies were flowing from her mouth that had never uttered the words, I love you, to any of my siblings or to me. Not in English, not in Mandarin. Now, here she was, putting into practice the complete opposite of compassion and acceptance by rejecting me wholly. Her words fractured me even more because I thought she had almost grown up into the woman I had always hoped she would be. She has crystals beneath the skylight. She was hoping they would cast rainbows everywhere. My parents, my grandmother, my aunts, uncles, cousins, we all said, Have you eaten yet? And whether you had or hadn't, you were offered more. This is how my grandmother showed us her love. This is where my broken family would attempt to become whole again, with weekly Sunday dinners, just like the Americans do. And we were expected, asked, and then passively aggressively reminded to show up. We all hoped this light over the dining table would shine over the one place our family continued to congregate around the table. I started to say I love you, first to my father. It happened when I was a freshman in college. My boyfriend at the time, my first love, got a phone call in the middle of the night while he was in bed with me at my apartment on Dwight Avenue in Berkeley. I answered, and it was his mother. She had called his apartment, and his roommate said he wasn't there, then told him where he actually was. Groggily, we answered. Stephen's dad has had a heart attack, his mother said. I handed the phone over to him. What? He said, fumbling for his glasses. What? And the next thing we knew, we were in his blue Volvo station wagon, driving to Marin as quickly as we could. It was too late. His father had passed. He had passed in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Everything was uncertain. Stephen's three younger sisters there. Four kids in his family, just like four kids in the one I belonged to. Both of us were the eldest, and his mother and father fought like my mother and father. We knew each other before we knew each other, living out the templates that our parents had already set for us. In the weeks that ensued, his mother spoke frankly to me, woman to woman. All of his relatives welcomed me in like I would soon become part of Stephen's family. Even in the eulogy that his father's co-worker gave, he said how Stephen's dad was so happy we were together. Stephen's father was always the advocate of our relationship, battling against his wife even there. She would not acknowledge me as his quote-unquote girlfriend, even after we'd been dating a year, until finally her husband beat her to the punch at a party picnic, and from that point forward, she had to call me his girlfriend. At the family gatherings, everyone welcomed me in as though I would be their daughter-in-law or relative-in-law soon, so they treated me familiarly, to the point that they asked if I could care for the family through this grieving time. I was 18 and asked to make dinner for the family, to run errands, to do everything I could in order to allow them to hurt. It was one of the rainiest seasons Northern California had experienced, and we all gathered forces to put sandbags in the backyard to prevent a mudslide from forming. We were all soaked, and everyone retreated to their respective bathrooms in the gigantic house in order to shower. Stephen's grandmother stopped me. Can you make dinner for them as they're cleaning up? Of course, I responded, both out of compassion for the screaming family of five, now rather than six, but also out of duty, obligation. They were also Chinese-American, one generation before mine, and I could not wrap my head around how his grandparents spoke perfect English without any accents. I was taught to be, quote-unquote, the good girl and the dutiful daughter, so I stood there in their big stainless steel kitchen and cooked. 
shivering. I did everything I could to soothe the pain the family was feeling. I gave my boyfriend blowjobs in the room where we slept on the carpeted floor, guilt and emptiness circulating behind closed doors. Finally, everyone was ready, retreating in front of televisions or staying in their rooms. Stephen's mother came down and in a coma-like state started to help me in the kitchen. I finished making dinner with her and served it on the table. I went and gathered everyone. They didn't much respond. I'm going to take a shower, I said to his mother, who was only half listening. There, I started to feel emotions well up that I did not know how to process. I got out, toweled myself off. Then I stayed in that same room where I pleasured my boyfriend and called my father. He always answered if he could. I was their first daughter in college, so being separate was new for them. I opened my mouth and started to hiccup tears. What's wrong, he asked, knowing that I've always been daddy's little girl. I filled him in about the unexpected heart attack Stephen's father had, which must have struck him closer than he would have liked given how much heart disease runs rampant in my father's family. Two of his sisters have had surgery. Another one is on medication, and he was likely afraid he was following close behind. I told him how hard it was, that I was doing everything I could for the family, and I felt that it was too much to handle, especially since a deeper part of me knew that I would never marry Stephen. So this was more obligation than I wanted to commit to. I love you, my father said to me as we were about to hang up the phone the first time ever in English or in Mandarin. I didn't know what to say. What? Would have been rude. And so now it was my turn to be in shock. I love you too, I responded. That's what American kids would have said, right? I walked out of the room, turned off the light, moved back to the darkness of the suffocating box Stephen's parents' house had become through this time. It felt like a little light had come on, no matter how dim the wattage. So that was another chapter in my book, and I am so grateful to you who have sent me messages to say, keep going, that this is what you want, that when you listen to it, you don't want the chapters to end. And that means so much to me. So if that is still how you feel and you want it to keep going, I would appreciate all the cheering on that you want to give at judy at wildheartedwords.com. And if there's anything else that you want to see or hear, please let me know. And if you would like to, you're going to hear me ask for you at the end of this episode to add a review so more people can find this podcast so that I know I'm creating something of value and that it's worthwhile. And from the emails that I've gotten, I know that it is. And, you know, putting your heart out there is a big thing. So thank you for listening. And I'm grateful for your support. Mahalo. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to support me and this show, please go to iTunes and leave your review. It means so much to me and it'll help others find this podcast. I'll catch you in the next episode. And if you'd like to stay in touch between now and then, please visit wildheartedwords.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I've had people share with me that it's the best thing to arrive in their inbox all week. Aloha. Aloha.